and welcome. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a Euractive hybrid conference supported by Sanofi. Today's debate is all about transforming haematology care, empowering better cancer treatment in the EU's beating cancer plan. But speaking of the EU's beating cancer plan, here's a fact of sorts that I have um, understood. Haematology and the types of blood cancer, such as lymphoma, myeloma and leukaemia, they're not specifically mentioned in the beating cancer plan. If you don't believe me, control F, go through the PDF and try to search for them. But today isn't really about, and it's not at all actually, about pointing fingers. It's about finding the best ways possible to beat cancer back. It's about creating greater awareness at a national level as well, not just an EU level, and ensuring that of course there is the best help and support and also mental support to help people who are of course suffering from um, these blood cancers. What we do know is that blood cancers can't really be prevented. The only prevention is early diagnosis, and that's something that you're going to hear from some of the other panellists as well. The cancer stats themselves are horrible. Cancer is a second leading cause of death across the EU. It accounts for 23% of all deaths. According to the WHO, there were 320,000 new cases of people with blood cancer in Europe back in 2020. This is a disease where revolutionising the kind of cancer testing, new technologies, medicines and therapies are so key to helping bring some of those numbers down and getting people the help that they of course need. One thing though that is severely lacking is data, national registries that can really provide insight on best practices or even possibly policy to meet unmet needs. So today we have lots to discuss. Um, this is a very, very important topic, you could say, within um, the topic of cancer itself. Few bits of housekeeping. You are, of course, being live streamed. Um, this event is being live streamed and you are being recorded. Um, so just want to say that in case anyone's a little bit shy of the camera. And as always, we have our Slido app open. You can scan the QR code or you can send in your questions. Um, please do put the name of the panellist or the person you want to direct the question to and we will be getting uh, to those questions a little bit on um, further on in the programme. Okay, well with that, um, let me now introduce you to the panellists. We have Matthias Schoop, he's a project uh, team leader for Cancer Plan at DJ Sante at the European Commission. He joins online. Welcome. We will have, in this empty chair next to me, um, MEP Nicola Gonzalez Casares. Um, from what I understand, he is also a former nurse. Um, we have Robin Dozwick. Yes, just about. Okay, apologies, I should have asked you before. He's the head of European Affairs at the European Haematology Association. We have Natasha Wolanias. She's the head of membership and alliances at the Lymphoma Coalition. She also joins online. Welcome to you all. So we have Richard Price, who's the head of policy at the European Cancer Organization. And last but not least, um, we have Sophie Van Tom, who's the Global Health Value Translation Lead at Sanofi. So um, now I'm going to give all of you the floor just to sort of introduce yourselves um, to our online audience and, of course, everyone who's in the room to advocate, you know, to let us know what you advocate for and what you're here to talk about today. So, Matthias, over to you first. Matthias, please go ahead. Yes, sorry. Um, 
Yes, as you probably know, the European Cancer Plan was adopted in 2021. And uh, with the plan, we uh, are trying to take a holistic and health in all policies approach to addressing cancer. So we try to address the entire cancer control continuum, starting from prevention through early detection, uh, diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of cancer patients. And we are also trying to cover cross-cutting issues such as inequalities, pediatric cancer, digitalization, uh, research, and innovation. Now, the cancer plan itself includes uh, 10 flagship actions and 30, sorry, excuse me, and 32 um, other actions uh, and has an unprecedented budget at EU, le EU level of 4 billion euros earmarked for the implementation of the plan. Um, now, perhaps a caveat, uh, since uh, it was mentioned that hematology or hematological malignancies are not explicitly mentioned in the plan, um, cancer is not a single disease. It's 200 or more uh, different uh, types of cancers and different types of malignancies. And you will indeed not find all these 200 mentioned in the cancer plan. As a matter, only very few cancer sites are explicitly mentioned in the cancer plan because we take this cross-cutting and holistic approach to that. However, having said that, um, we have quite a number of actions uh, that will help to improve also hematology care. Um, for instance, we focus in one of the flagships on establishing in a new network of cancer, um, comprehensive cancer centers and also new networks of expertise uh, on specific cancer conditions. Um, now, these new networks of expertise build on the experience that we have with the uh, European reference networks. Uh, and that's indeed where hematology, hematological malignancies are addressed because we have a European reference networks, Eurobloodnet, um, that focuses on, these, on this disease. Uh, and this reference network uh, existing since 2017, uh, includes 103 health, health service providers and covers 24 member states. And we are also in the progress um, as part of the plan to uh, provide further support uh, to this network and actually all four cancer-related uh, European reference networks that exist today. Okay, thank you so much, Matthias, and thank you also for pointing out that, of course, there are so many different types um, of cancer, of course, and that the plan itself, the Beating Cancer Plan, is taking a holistic approach. Thank you so much. We will get into that a little bit later. Um, so, MEP has joined us. So, sir, please do take the floor and uh, tell us a bit about yourself and why you wanted to be a part of this um, event today. First, thank you for the invitation. I apologize for, for being late. I came from other very different events. First, thank you for that. Uh, I think that uh, we worked a lot in the, during this term in the in the in this Becker report. I was the shadow rapporteur. I was involved in all the discussion about how to fight cancer in the next decade. And I think we we found um, very different outcomes. But one is the, the difficulty and the problems of inequality that we have in Europe regarding some kinds of cancer and concretely rare cancers and of course, hematologic cancers. I think that in this year, we, we have done a very important exercise of reflection about how to tackle cancer. And 
as the previous speaker said, we have very different kinds of cancer. And some of them very difficult to tackle because we don't have enough biomarkers or we don't have the technologies that can provide solutions for the people that have these cancers. So it's time to research and to create a momentum to increase the availability of data and the necessity of boost this use of data in order to achieve different solutions that can be pharma or can be biomarkers for diagnosis or to create screenings for different types of cancer. I think that uh, we have new tools and new treatments that are increasing the life expectancy in, in some different cancer, also hematological. And we also raise and take the flag of this ERN, the European Reference Networks, that uh, are needed to, to have a, a stable approach of the fight against cancer in Europe. And also, let me remind that we need also dedicated funds for strategic innovation when it comes to hematologic cancer. And I think the, 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 the cancer mission in the horizon Europe should, uh, should reserve some spaces for this kind of cancer. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Robin, over to you next. Um, Matthias, I, I heard you um, refer to the fact that not all 200 cancers can be mentioned in the, in the plan and, you know, frankly, we're not very concerned uh, that hematology is not mentioned there. What is really important, though, is that uh, in the implementation of the plan, uh, blood cancers are not overlooked. Um, they're, they're the burden that, that comes with blood cancers, both in terms of, of health impact and, and economic uh, cost is, is huge. Um, in, in, in addition to that, um, innova innovation um, in hematology and in, in other cancer types are closely linked. Hematology is one of the drivers uh, of innovation uh, across cancer research, <coughs> um, across um, efforts to improve uh, cancer diagnostics, cancer therapies. So um, it's, it, it is very important that hematology is part of the implementation of the, of the plan. And uh, there are some specific uh, challenges um, that are not unique uh, to hematology, but that uh, are very prominent in hematology. Uh, data generation uh, is one. Um, uh, access is another, affordable access. And I'm sure there will be an opportunity to say more about this later on. Indeed. Um, Natasha, over to you next. Yes, thank you. Well, um, I'm, I'm patient representative, I'm patient advocate, and as patient advocate, I'm interested in optimizing patient involvement in decision making and strengthening the patient voice to be heard. So that's the reason for I want to get involved in this event today. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that we need policy coherence that ensures a synergy among the various efforts being made at European level. Um, also to strengthen that the only prevention applicable to blood cancer is early detection, precision diagnosis, ensuring high quality diagnostic, laboratory capacity, and clear guidelines harmonized across countries. Blood cancers, uh, in most cases are systemic diseases, meaning 
these are not localized. So you cannot really treat, for instance, with surgery to take tumors out. Then more than ever, treatment pathways should be aligned with evidence from patient outcomes and the patient experience. Macias mentioned quality of life, and I would say that it is alarming to know the lack of knowledge about the impact in quality of life of delays in diagnosis and treatment adverse effects in long term. And I want to underline that European patient groups have data on the patient experience, on the patient journey. So we are very capable to tell where the most burning gaps are. And, and that, that may help also to monitor time to patient access to the important areas that have really impact on the final outcome. Okay, thank you, Natasha. Uh, Richard, over to you next. Hi, well, so I'm representing today the European Cancer Organization, and we're an umbrella federation of 41 member societies, healthcare professionals working in cancer. And we're delighted to have EHA as one of our key members. But we work across the tumor types, respiratory specialists, urology, gynecology, across the piece. And for us, I would really chime with the words of uh, Matthias Schupen. This is unprecedented. The attention and political um, will that we have for cancer policy at the moment. That also puts responsibility and onus back on us in the cancer community to make it work. And that's the role that we would try to see ourselves playing, helping people to form connections in implementing parts of the plan, but also feeding back where we think there's improvements to be made. And as we look ahead to a, a European Parliament election next year, a new commission, we should think about where aspects of policy could be refreshed. There's incredible scientific and technological developments that we need to take account of. We need to take account of experiences like the COVID-19 uh, crisis, as well as uh, terrible crises happening in Ukraine and elsewhere, and where that might impact our thinking on cancer cooperation. But as we're going to combat potential Euroscepticism, when people ask the question, what does the EU do for me? We want more and more cancer policy to be one of the answers that people think of. Okay, nicely said. Um, Sophie. Thank you, Mariam. Hi, everyone. So I'm Sophie. I'm from Sanofi. I'm a bit the odd one out here. I work in global R&D and patient-informed development. And my mission is really to bring the patient voice to our clinical development programs uh, to make sure that we develop potential new treatments that really address their unmet needs and their preferences and bring value to their lives, especially related to quality of life. So we engage with patients and patient advocacy groups throughout the life cycle of a new product development to understand directly from them what is the disease burden, treatment burden, and what are their expectations of a potential new treatment. And so by better understanding all of those aspects, we can design our trials to be more patient-friendly and more inclusive as well. Now, in cancer, of course, survival is leading, but we want to look beyond that, and we want to put more emphasis on quality of life and tolerability, because by un understanding those patient needs, you understand quality of life is more important as well. And then you can translate that into meaningful endpoints in our clinical trials. Now, sadly, if you look at clinical trials the past 10 years conducted in hemato-oncology uh, indications, only 50% included quality of life as a, as a measurement, compared to solid cancers, which was more than 70%. So there's a real gap between what is important to patients and what is being measured in trials. And then the next hurdle is 
measuring in such a way that it is meaningful to patients and accepted by authorities uh, and payers. And by talking to multiple myeloma patients as an example, I understood that the standard or the validated quality of life questionnaires don't always capture what is really important to them, the impact on their daily lives. But those are the questionnaires that are most often used because they might be accepted by the authorities. Now looking at the EMA approved cancer drugs from the past give or take five years, only 20% of the label text has, is patient informed, has something, some language related to patient reported outcomes. So the gap between what is important to patients and how it is measured and assessed in new oncology drugs is huge. So in my opinion, we should put quality of life on higher on our agendas. And I think it's, it requires a multi-stakeholder uh, approach to do that. Okay, well, first question to you then. I mean, obviously this is um, your event, you could say. So why did you want to specifically, why did um, Sanofi specifically want to talk about blood cancers? Well, cancer that affects an organ or a body part, um, everyone can relate to that, right? Lung, breasts, uh, skin cancer, everyone understands. But um, blood cancers are less tangible, are far less known to the general public. Some people, maybe quite, some of them know what acute leukemia is or they have heard of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But how about multiple myeloma, amyloidosis, myelodysplastic syndrome, chronic uh, leukemia? And I wonder how many people are aware that um, leukemia is the, the most common childhood cancer. So as for all cancers, if there's more awareness, People can recognize their symptoms much faster, can go to their GP that could also get some more education at that level, I think, so that they have a, a, a timely referral to, to specialists and diagnosis can be set. And then that could lead to earlier intervention. And again, taking the example of multiple myeloma, with an earlier intervention, you could um, potentially um, avoid the end organ damage that happens when the disease is more progressed. You avoid management of those heavy symptoms and complications, which is also a cost to the healthcare. Um, so earlier intervention, as already discussed, uh, leads to improved outcomes, and we all benefit from that as a society. Now, the treatment pathway for blood cancers is also very different compared to solid tumors. Um, as Natasha already mentioned, there's not a tumor you can carve out. There's no surgery. Also, radiation is a very limited, can only be applied in certain lymphomas. So systemic treatment is the way to go. Unless if you're a fit patient and you're eligible to um, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. But also very often patients relapse after that, so they get into systemic treatment. It's not uncommon for multiple myeloma patients to have five, six, seven, eight, nine lines of treatment and maintenance therapies thereafter. So basically, it's a con they are continuously on treatment with a systemic drug, have to go to the hospital to get their follow-ups, to get their drug administrations, etc. There's a huge burden to the caregivers, uh, for the patients themselves, of course, the caregivers and society. So um, also the landscape, the treatment landscape, the past decade has, has um, increased in complexity. There's much more combination therapy nowadays, um, and cell therapy has entered uh, the landscape. So I, I think we should give it some thought. How is this going to impact the access to care to patients? You need more specialized facilities to administer cell therapy. And again, coming back to tolerability and convenience of treatment, um, 
that's, that puts it in a different light when you have these combination trials. So I think all in all, enough reasons uh, to, to give hemato-oncology specific attention and look into the specific needs within the European uh, beating cancer plan. Okay, and so let's bring in Natasha then. Um, do you think that there is a sort of lack of awareness then amongst, you could say, the general population when it comes to dealing um, with blood cancers and perhaps a lack of realisation that this isn't necessarily something that can be fixed, as you were saying, by taking a tumour out? Yes, of course. Uh, the lack of knowledge, the lack of awareness about blood cancers is massive and this has been proved in every study on healthy therapy in hematology. Um, but also because there is no uh, good integration uh, with primary care. So it's not only that patients may not recognize the symptoms that sometimes are very unspecific. That's the case of lymphoma. They currently match COVID symptoms. But if the GPs or primary care do not have the right awareness, and whenever they have that awareness, they do not have capacity or uh, procedures in place to refer early the patient to the specialty that they need, um, there is waste of time. And at the end, that has an impact on the patient opportunities to get their uh, disease cured or even treated, not to mention quality of life. I want to remark the role of registries. I think one of the gaps we have is that every time you go to World Health Organization, to Globocan um, information, you find like leukemias, lymphomas, uh, but leukemias, neither lymphomas are single diseases. You have several types. Some of them are chronic, some of them are aggressive the different course of the different disease. Only in lymphomas, we have more than 80 entities. Uh, so we need to gather data by disease subtype, separating each of them is the only way to really build understanding of the disease. And also we need to have a plan in how to translate that knowledge into better research and better clinical practice including, of course, domains in quality of life and patient experience data. Um, and this may have an impact also on how we plan cancer survivorship. And again, they need to integrate the cancer pathway for survivals in, in primary care. So we can take that out from the hospitals and try to bring, you know, to other areas is about the management of increasing cancer treatment, long-term side effects, the cancer comorbidities that are typical in, in older patients that are the target for many blood cancers. Um, yes, yeah, so all these things play a role. And, and for that, I want also to see the, 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 the opportunities behind hematology, behind blood cancers. I think blood cancers are perfect drivers for innovation. It has been proved already that every new therapy seems to start in hematology. That was the case for cell therapy, was the case for stem cell transplantation, was the case for monoclonal antibodies, and, and we could have many examples. And that are, are also good drivers to build capacity in healthcare workers. Um, so we need also to ensure that we have uh, the right workforce, I mean, clinicians, 
and nurses well equipped and not even the specialties recognized across countries. So the gaps are really too many. Mateus, and perhaps, or would you like to comment as well, uh, perhaps after Mateus? So you're hearing that there are lots of gaps, workforce data, knowledge, awareness, understanding. Is that what the EU Beating Cancer Plan is then providing for, without specifically, you could say, providing for blood cancers? Is that where it comes in, Mateus? Um, I, I would indeed say yes, um, because several of the issues that were mentioned are being addressed or by or addressed by actions as part of the cancer plan. If we, for instance, look at the uh, registry data, um, we are aware that this is an, is an issue. And uh, colleagues in the Commission's joint research centers are uh, working very closely with the European network of cancer registries. Um, to address, uh, let's say, inconsistencies and data gaps uh, that we indeed have concerning hematological um, malignancies. Um, so over the course and of course uh, of, the, of the last decade, and this is indeed uh, only slow progress, um, there have been gradual improvements and uh, currently uh, a working group of the European Network of Cancer Registries is working on further refining uh, the uh, recommendations uh, for registering these um, these cancers. Um, and as I understand, work on this uh, should uh, finish in early 2024. So it's not too far out. Perhaps on another element mentioned, uh, that's the linkage and integration uh, with primary care and the national health systems. Um, here, the Commission is uh, working with member states uh, through uh, what we call a joint action. Um, that's a direct grant to member states uh, to improve the integration of the current uh, ERN system and the current existing ERNs with the national healthcare systems. Um, so this is also underway. Uh, and. Uh, Indeed, the other elements that are mentioned, for instance, health professional training are also uh, addressed by the plan. We have already um, projects up, on, up and running on interspecialty training involving also some of the colleagues uh, here on the panel uh, from ECHO. Um, so I think we are making a reasonable and good progress uh, in, in many of the areas that are being mentioned today. Okay, so it's quite a collective approach. So, MEP Nicolabin, do you think that this beating cancer plan really provides that alignment with haematology malignancies? Whether, you know, we've heard that it doesn't specifically mention it um, per se, but do you think the general concept is there? Sure, the general concept and the block cancer is clearly in the, in the Becker report. For me, it's very clear and are dedicated solutions for, for block cancers. But now the problem ahead is, is not the Becker report that was in the past. Now is the how it's implemented, not only by the Commission, also in member states. It's the real challenge that we are having. Because we have seen during the, the Becker report that we are facing a lot of inequalities among member states, but in, also into member states and different level of income. It's very important. So we, we have to... Uh, 
a balance here that we have to, to, to break the imbalance that we have. Because sometimes innovation is not the same as accessibility. And we have to support this idea how to boost innovation, but at the same time give accessibility to treatments to the patients that are suffering blood cancer. Because some of them, the, the, the very rare ones, uh, don't have uh, treatments by now, and we need innovation on that. But in those cancers, those blood cancers that we have this innovation, it's very important to give accessibility to patients. And this is not happening across Europe. In some member states, it's very difficult to have these treatments. But even if you want to buy these treatments, you don't have uh, accessibility for an availability of those treatments in your member states. So this is a big problem. You are saying to some patients that you don't have a solution here in your country. And this is a mess, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not fair, but also it's not acceptable for... So if it's such a mess then, what does the Beating Cancer Plan actually do then? The Beating Cancer Plan says that this is not acceptable, that member states should implement and should adopt uh, the, the, the innovation fastly to their national national systems of reimbursement or adaptability. There are some member states that are lagging behind. They are lagging behind because they don't adopt very fast the necessary treatments for the arsenal that they have in their, their countries. So they have to shorten the times. They adopt the, some of the technologies. And I think that it's clear that uh, regarding these ERM possibilities that we have, that, that we have to boost and we have to support with European funds the, 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 this, the, 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 the continued functioning of the ERNs and also dedicated ERNs for blood cancer in member states because we need also people, not only people from the side of the patient, I, 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 very thank you to Natasha that they are defending uh, blood cancer. And sometimes it's very difficult to explain to the people what blood cancer is because very different, uh, very different disease, but with very different symptoms and signals that sometimes people never understand. Only if you have suffered a cancer or, or you have a child that is suffering a cancer. So I think it's time to move forward and it's time to say we have a Becker report but let's see how this Becca report is implemented. I think it's now the time to do it, and for sure the next, the next legislature is, is time to uh, take a, a very clear perspective of what is really happening in the way to 2030. That is the main horizon for, for the Becca report. Okay, so Richard then, do you think that um you know, these reports, these, 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 these kind of initiatives to try to, you know, get cancer prevention and care and diagnostics, all of that, you know, up and running in all the different member states. Do you think it's actually working? Do these kind of policies actually work? Well, or do they just point out where the problems are and nothing in terms of real concrete action is actually taken? I would take a very positive view. I see a lot of great foundations being built already within the last few years and those are foundations that we can build on, be it the EU network of comprehensive cancer centres, the interspecialty training. But I think as well, to build on um, Nicholas's remarks, that we need to not just see the plan in itself, uh, the 40 initiatives in there is the benefit. It's also about the knock-on benefit it can have at member state level. We're working with a lot of countries where the plan has stimulated their own national initiatives to respond to the plan, mirroring the plan 
um, and its various sections as well. We see fantastic data coming through now that we didn't have before on precisely the inequalities in cancer through the inequalities registry. That is triggering thoughts about how we can better target resources. So I wouldn't see the plan only in itself. It's also the connected initiatives, the European health data space, pharmaceutical legislation. All of these things are threaded together and um, that's what we need to be keeping our eye on everything. Okay, so do you think, so would you say that policy is just a big shift in the right direction then? Yes, rather like, I mean, the, in America they talk about the moonshot on cancer, emulating the, the, the trip to the moon and how that stimulated interest in science, interest in the field. And I think that there's something similar happening here that you, it is providing a magnet for um, policy initiatives to be developed from a bottom-up approach as well. And could you perhaps give one sort of concrete example or, or would you like to perhaps comment? I'll let uh, Richard finish first. Well, I think in, um, I would take, take an example is uh, the target of having 90% access uh, to, or, or patients having access to comprehensive cancer care. Now, in the many Western European countries, that was already in place. For the many Eastern European countries, there was close to zero uh, access to that because there was no comprehensive cancer care centres. Those centres are now being planned for, uh, by, sponsored by national governments. That's a, a very concrete um, achievement. Thousands of patients will get new forms of better care that would not have happened without this plan. Robin? Some very important things have been uh, mentioned here. Uh, Nicola said uh, the fact that you have innovation in itself does not uh, automatically mean that patients benefit. Um, and I think that is almost nowhere more true than in, in hematology because of the, the, the multiple and very complex uh, challenges uh, in improving access and, and affordability. Um, the inequalities um, in what countries can, can afford, uh, both in terms of, of infrastructure uh, and, and uh, reimbursement uh, of innovative therapies. Um, discrepancies are, are enormous and it is very difficult addressing them, also in part because, as you said, um, hematology is not one disease. Uh, there are a lot of blood cancers that are not all the same and come with their own specific uh, challenges, uh, awareness uh, problems. So yes, training of, uh, of, uh, of medical professionals is extremely um, important. Uh, Richard, you mentioned the need uh, for, for complementarity and, and interlinkage between all the different EU uh, initiatives. And I think that is absolutely crucial. I'm very happy to have already heard the ERNs uh, being mentioned uh, several times. They are uh, absolutely crucial as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, for, for blood cancers, that is, of course, uh, the ERN EuroBloodNet. Um, we all know that support at member state level for these uh, ERNs is one of the, the big challenges. Um, so um, anything that the plan can contribute uh, there to, to uh, boost and, and improve the sustainability um, uh, and, and financial um, uh, capacities of the, of the ERNs, that is very important. Um, you mentioned the pharma uh, review, um, that of course is, is, is very important for improving access. Um, one thing, I mean, there are, there are many the things that need to be done to improve access um, to the best available treatments in, in blood cancers. Um, but one aspect that can definitely not be overlooked is, is pricing and reimbursement. 
um, a, a huge problem. Um, and there uh, we come back to the point that Nicolas made. Um, there is a lot of innovation in hematology, um, but that innovation often results in uh, therapies that are very expensive. So getting, uh, making them available uh, to, to the patients that need them in all European countries is, is an, uh, a huge challenge and a lot is needed. Um, so the attention for uh, affordability uh, in the revision of the pharmaceutical legislation is an important step. But also, for example, the HTA regulation, harmonization of health technology assessment at the European level um, is extremely important here because it will help make payers make better decisions um, based on, on solid clinical effectiveness uh, assessments. Sophie? Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm pondering that the access to care is also very much linked to the access to clinical trials, right? And um, what we do here when talking with patient advocacy groups, they ask us why, why in this and this and this country is there no clinical trial available for us? And we have an ethical and a legal commitment to launch the product in the country where we perform a clinical trial. So knowing that in that country, not even the standard of care is already difficult for patients to get, how will we ever have an innovative treatment reimbursed? So we won't be able to launch basically. So then going to that country with a clinical trial becomes very much challenging. So the disparities also will enlarge there with the innovation. We do need that innovation and cell therapy is going to uh, turn a lot of worlds around, um, but it, it creates a, a, yeah, a bigger problem as well on the, on the access to, to clinical trials, and which for some patients is their only option uh, also in hematology, well, like I mentioned, the eighth, ninth uh, line of treatment, those patients, they, they go from clinical trial to clinical trial and they benefit from it. And you Talk us through that a little bit more then, because I think people, you know, especially people who are watching, try to understand what that life or that journey, you could say, of somebody with blood cancer is. I can, my, most of my experience is in multiple myeloma, so I won't talk for other uh, conditions. Um, so in multiple myeloma patients, uh, as I mentioned, they, they can have a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Often, if they are fit, that means if they are young enough, if they are in good shape, a lot of these patients already have been diagnosed late, so they have a more progressed disease. They are not fit enough to get a transplant, so they start with a systemic treatment. There's a whole treatment uh, pathway well described in clinical practice guidelines, first line, second line, etc. But after the fourth line of treatment, when you become, when you are refractory or re you relapse to specific um, uh, targeted drugs, you, your next option is a clinical trial. And the competitive landscape is huge. There's, there's a lot of innovation. It's already been said a lot. There's a lot of um, um, clinical research being done in multiple myeloma. And as a result, the, the, the options for patients also there can be enormous if they are available in their country. So they need to go, they need to, if we want to promote a shared decision-making with their doctor, this also becomes increasingly complex with all the different types of treatments that become available also at a clinical trial level. But that's for the wealthy countries. Right, so what happens in the non-wealthy countries then? Exactly, then the standard of care, they might get the first line treatment, but Natasha and, and Robin know, know more about this as well. They, might, they, they can get the first line or the second line treatment and then 
it's questionable if they can say on the maintenance that is standard of care in Western countries, if that is available in their country. Okay, well, let's, let's bring in Natasha then to, to respond to that then, about the kind of level of care that is available then. Before that, I want to, to sure, be go on ahead, the, yeah. of the clinical research on clinical yes. trials. I want to remark that clinical trials are not available in every country. Not only that, at Lymphoma Coalition, we did a study a few years ago trying to understand the clinical trials landscape. And we discovered that if we put all the trials together in a given country, there are, how to say this? You are looking for a number of patients that are not available in that country with that criteria. Um, so we are basically building trials in many cases for patients that do not exist because the inclusion criteria inclusion exclusion criteria are not really matching the characteristics of the patients who need those trials and here is where academic research i'm sure has a role and the European Cancer Plan should ensure a structure and funding for independent research, uh, but ensuring also that bureaucracy is not jeopardizing the opportunity of having academic research. Ideally, we should have kind of framework to conduct academically lead independent clinical trials involving multiple stakeholders, patients, health economy organizations, medicines, regulators, etc., with independent evaluation of the data, looking for treatment optimization, because in recent years, many innovative medicines have been approved, but we don't know how to sequence them. We don't know what is best than other. So this is making too complicated decision-making at reimbursement level, and there is no point of bringing new medicines, even to get them approved at regulatory level, if they are not going to be available uh, for the patients who need them. And I will stop Mateus? here. Oh, Mateus, would you like to comment on that? Uh, yes, um, perhaps to flag, and it was briefly mentioned, I think, at the beginning, that the Europe's Beating Cancer Plan also works hand-in-hand -hand with the Horizon Europe Cancer Mission. And that is indeed, let's say, the arm uh, for, for research, including also clinical trials, um, through the Horizon Europe program. And here we also have now with the Cancer Mission a, a dedicated budget at EU level um, to invest in research, including clinical trials and also the type of pragmatic trials that are referenced here. Um, so I think uh, this is um, indeed uh, sometimes it's not clear to people uh, what are the difference between the Europe's Beating Cancer Plan and the cancer mission. Um, but I think it's a very uh, favorable coincidence that we also have the cancer mission, a second initiative focusing on cancer, which provides this capacity and investment in research that goes hand in hand with addressing all the other challenges in cancer care. Okay. Um, did you want to comment? No? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, yes, I, I would love to uh, build on the comments made uh, about clinical research. 
uh, yes, access to clinical trials is absolutely crucial, but I would add that it needs to be access to the right clinical trials. Um, and, and, and that builds on what Natasha uh, said. It's also very much about creating room and, and, and um, finding ways to fund academic clinical trials that fill the gaps um, left for understandable reasons by, by industry, um, which prioritizes development um, in commercially interesting uh, areas. But hematology, blood cancers, is increasingly about personalized, targeted uh, therapies. And that requires um, different types of, of clinical trials um, uh, adapted, uh, more flexible regulatory uh, networks, um, and the registries have already been mentioned, um, appropriate um, data collection and sharing uh, mechanisms. And these combined are, are huge uh, challenges. And I, <clears throat> I do want to do uh, uh, justice to, the, to what is already being done by the, by the European Commission. Matthias mentioned uh, Horizon Europe. Um, we ourselves are currently a partner in a consortium um, that works on uh, developing new uh, tools for policymakers, um, uh, cost-effectiveness, pricing and reimbursement models. But for clinical trials, uh, we are already uh, in deep conversations with uh, the European Medicines Agency um, as well as HTA bodies, which take a strong interest in the needs uh, and views of, of hematologists and hematology patients when it comes uh, to, to clinical trials. And I, I <coughs> uh, could highlight here particularly uh, post-approval uh, uh, treatment optimization trials. Uh, which is very important because of the specific data generation challenges in traditional clinical trials. Um, so the smaller the patient populations, uh, the more targeted the, the therapies, uh, the larger the need uh, for follow-up uh, trials that collect real-world evidence uh, that help doctors optimize treatments and that help uh, regulators and payers make better access decisions. And so, so that people are aware, are there specific trials for the different types of blood cancers? Um, well, specific trials, um, multiple new trial formats are, are uh, needed, um, like basket and, and platform trials. Uh, I think Sophie mentioned that increasingly um, hematology care is also about a combination or a follow-up of different uh, types of, of treatments. Um, so that requires very different ways of, uh, of, of, of testing and demonstrating efficacy and safety and real-world effectiveness uh, of uh, hematology treatments. And so beyond the trials then, um, I think it was one thing that you also brought up, which was the training of professionals. Um, so we'll come to our MEP for that one then. I think, I believe that you were, I've been told that you, were, that you used to be a nurse. Yes, I yes. am. So as I someone, used to be, no, yes. I am. I oh, you are a nurse. Okay. So as someone who is a trained medical this professional... It never disappears. No, it never disappears? So what, what, what sort of training or awareness do you think that needs to be more in place across member states? Or perhaps you could speak from your own experience when it comes to blood cancers. Speaking by my own experience, I, I can say that sometimes blood cancers are, uh, are very you know, well-known for... for also for, 
for professionals, health professionals. We sometimes, at, at primary care level, it's very difficult to, to, to have contact, for example, with these patients because are always uh, treated by their physicians in the, in, the, in the specialized systems, not the primary care. And I think this is a problem of knowledge also because if you don't have a contact with those patients, you really don't know what is happening with them and which are the treatments and which are the secondary effects of these treatments and you are always have to contact with their physicians. So I think we need much more skills and better knowledge and we are having a lack of professionals across Europe. Nurses and doctors. And if we have a lack of professionals, we have a lack of knowledge in the whole, in the whole health system. So how to improve the knowledge of blood cancers, I think it's very difficult. And we need a dedicated, we need dedicated programs in member states. And of course, I cannot understand that, for example, the hematologies especially, especially is, is not a reality in all the member states. I think it's, it's not acceptable, really not acceptable, because it's very complicated to treat people with leukemia, with other blood cancers. And I think that we have also a, a, a very important number of pediatric patients with blood cancer. So we need more information, not only for patients, but also to health professionals. I, I work in the, emergency, in the emergency room and also in the intensive care units for emergency. And for us, it was a problem when we receive an emergency with people with blood cancer, because the treatments are sometimes very complicated and this multi-approach treatment is very difficult to understand when you have a problem, an acute problem to treat and which are the interactions between the drugs that you use in emergency situation and the drugs that the patient is already receiving and how it's going to function, for example, if you use low blood pressure and you have a problem of uh, uh, like, a, like a shock because some of the patients have very important infections and how to treat this in the early stage is very very difficult to know and not all the doctors know how to do it in emergency rooms. You can imagine for example in primary care they always have to take the phone and contact all the physicians. So the, the necessary skills are much neither on blood cancer than even others in all the cancers, in all the cancers, but in blood cancer is the is more, I don't want to say rare because are not very rare, are common, but it's very easy to know that the lung or breast and so on, but the blood is more difficult to understand, not only for the public in general, also for the health professionals. And so just the, the problem starts really at, you could say at school, the medical training. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it, um, uh, it does, and at EHA we have developed uh, programs um, and are rolling them out currently um, that try to improve uh, awareness and visibility of hematology as uh, a specialty that medical students can choose uh, to pursue already at medical schools. Um, so, I mean, it, it definitely, we see that also our own uh, responsibility for ourselves as the European Hematology Association to contribute uh, to improve education 
starting uh, at, at med schools. Um, as Nicolas mentioned, recognition of hematology is uh, a problem, or the lack of recognition of hematology as a distinct medical specialty in some countries, because it means that uh, the funding, uh, public funding for specialty training programs, will go to the recognized uh, specialties and not hematology. Um, here again, the picture is extremely um, heterogeneous across uh, Europe. Um, so we are trying to map this and work with the national societies of hematologists uh, as well as patient organizations um, uh, to try to improve that. Um, but we, we could probably use some help. <laughs> I wanted to come in because I think the Beating Cancer Plan, uh, one of the things I admire about it is on that education piece. There's a very nice template model whereby there are common challenges that are noted, whether it's on interspecialty training or training in healthcare professionals in digital skills, noted at the European level. All countries share that, that challenge. And the EU is then sponsoring professional societies to develop curriculums that can be accessed by all health systems. And I think that's a very efficient way for Europe to meet some of these education challenges, not to have every country trying to meet them separately, but doing it in common. Okay. Uh, would you like to say something, Sophie? Or, no. Uh, Natasha, I believe you were waiting to uh, say something. Uh, it has nothing with it to do with what you were talking about, but I, it's just that I remember that there are also issues with the GDPR uh, that I want to mention, because this is making difficult to, for instance, upload or to share patient data for for instance, for consultation on cloud platforms with physicians in other countries. We have suffered that recently when we were trying to help clinicians to, to get patients from Ukraine treated in, in Europe. You know, So imagine we want to get benefit from getting access to expertise through cross-country molecular tumor boards for rare cases, and rare cases are the normal in, in hematology. Uh, so, general data protection regulation is interpreted differently across countries. And the only message I want to, to send is that we need clarity, only one way to go with each regulation, because uh, we are living, I'm afraid, we are living space for over or misinterpretation, and this, uh, at the end, translates into different ways when adopting the regulations at country level. We are seeing exactly the same with the right to be forgotten that was uh, promoted to, to solve issues uh, with patient access to insurance or to credit, for instance. Uh, the adoption in different countries, in the, in the just a few countries where these have been adopted, uh, is totally different. So from number of years, uh, before your end your treatment so that you need to declare or not that you have had a cancer to the ages uh, patients may have to get benefit from that to what tumors are included for instance not many in the hematology space by the way um, so that's something I uh, that really worries me you know when we leave space for interpretation Okay. Um, well, MP Nicolas, one thing we haven't yet touched upon is the regulation on the European Health Data Space, EHDAs. Um, how much 
could that really help to harvest the right kind of data that we do need? We've had lots of the panelists talking about the kind of data that's needed. How could that actually help? And does that actually become a well, privacy concern? Which is the kind of data that we need. This is the, the real question. If you ask this question for different actors, you, you will obtain different answers. For sure, from Sanofi, you obtain some answers. And from sure, for me, from the side of health professionals, you obtain others, or from policymaker, could be others. For example, I have different perspective. But the, the right way to do it is, is to find the right balance between the needs of data and the protection of the patients and the interests of the most important thing that is health. So how to do it? Very difficult. It's really very difficult. This is the real discussion we are having. But we have we share all a coincidence. We need more data. We need more availability of data and we need a clear standardization of data because if we want the access to the data, the first thing is to speak the same language across member states. This is the first step. And then which data are accessible in the different levels. I mean, uh, anonymized data is very easy to understand that we can collect this data and, it's, and you don't have any protection. But regarding rare cancers, regarding blood cancers, the data is very limited. So the combination of the data across member states is necessary, but also uh, you cannot have anonymized data in these cases for a long time because you, you need, you have a very small amount of patients and you need to follow this patient along the time and all the variables of this patient. So we have to find a right framework in these situations. And the industry needs also a commitment that if they have this data, they use the data only for this purpose. They cannot resell this data. And they, they have the duty to protect this data and to protect the patients. Because behind all the European health data space, there is a, a risk. And the risk is the misuse of the data of the patients. And we are saying, use the data for innovation, please use it. But take care of some misuses. Now I have my, have this watch here. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, uh, my heart frequency mm -hmm. is here and can be transmitted to some places. But imagine that uh, my insurance company knows that I have uh, a problem, a health problem, and they are knowing my right uh, blood signal situation in, in right moment, and they have a monitoring system. Uh, it would be a mess, not only for me, also for the whole the whole society. It's a uh, not very clear example, but it gives an idea that we need also commitments from different sides. I know that the health professionals are very clearly committed to protect this data, and they use the data every day. But I want to have the same perception from the side of the industry, not only pharmaceutical. I mean, I, I, in this case, I trust more in pharmaceutical than others. But there are other industries that want this data to use in their own benefit. Okay, so if you go ahead. 
And the only thing I can add is indeed for the pharmaceutical industry, protection of, of privacy and patient data is extremely important. So mis misuse uh, should hopefully not, not happen from a pharmaceutical perspective. But I think you're right. What, when we talk to patients in service and we ask around, how was your feeling, um, how do you feel about um, digital measures? If we would apply that in a clinical trial, if there would be some monitor to measure your vital signs, how would you, how would you accept that? Or would you say no to that clinical trial? And lots of patients mention their data privacy. They are, they are scared of being monitored the whole time. And it balances sometimes, it tips to the, to the side that yes, I want to be monitored because I will feel safe. I know someone is watching my vitals and they can send an ambulance if needed. But on the other hand, what happens with all of the data? Because they go into some kind of cloud and who can access it if your system is being breached, for instance. So it's a common, I think your example of the yeah. smartwatch is a perfect example because that's what it relates to people. But that is the problem with data, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just, I think the, the example of the health data space, it sort of fits with, we've seen it over the past 10 years, clinical trials regulation, medical device regulation, GDPR. We sometimes see repetition in perhaps you might call it mistakes in that um, sometimes these issues can be contentious and EU legislation lives off compromise. And compromise can sometimes take the form of scope for interpretation, which then leads to divergence, which then leads to the actual initial intention not being achieved in the way that was imagined. And I, I detect a little bit that potent, potentially happening with the health data space at the moment. There obviously are legitimate concerns about how data is used, but if we over-regulate or over-stipulate in the primary legislation, we might build up a lot of problems later on, be it in data biases, be it in completely divergent approaches across Europe. So we have to take care not to repeat mistakes we've already made on other legislation as well. Do you think that patients are more willing in this circumstance to actually try to provide data to help with the outcomes of other patients that come after them as well? Well, I think it depends on patients you speak to, but in general, we've found that patients are, are see the benefits of pseudonymized data being shared for research purposes, for example, and not having that potentially compromised by very lengthy consent procedures that might have to burden healthcare professionals as well. Um, but uh, my view or take on it would be not everything needs to be dealt with in primary legislation. Perhaps having good governance arrangements around boards, etc., that involves patients and healthcare professionals, part of that decision making, allows legislation to be more adaptable as well, because we know uh, the environments in this field change all the time, and we won't, won't necessarily get it right in 2023, the next 20 years, we have to be, have mechanisms for change. I, I very much agree, but I, I'm actually a bit reluctant always to talk about uh, patient data because our patients always tell us they're, they're our data, the only owners of patient data are the patients. So maybe we should give Natasha the, the word on this. Okay, Natasha. <coughs> well, the, the, the issue with health data is that patients are normally more open than anyone else to share when they know that sharing their data is going to help them or help those who come behind. What, uh, what I think we have a problem is in digital literacy in general. If you think where, you know, in some cases, some patients may even come to tell, well, I have some concerns about my data being registered or recorded or analyzed by external bodies when I don't know who those bodies are. But it is quite ironic uh, if we compare 
there is a lack of coherence when you see behaviors in patients and citizens in general, because we accept the terms for every single app you install in any device without even reading what you are accepting. And I'm afraid we are sharing much more that we have ever considered is safe to, to, to share. So we need to have uh, a plan behind uh, to explain patients where the risks are, but also to build citizens literacy in this regard. So, so we understand that when it comes to share health data, uh, is good as soon as this is helping to build knowledge, is helping to speed up discoveries and is helping to, to, to better understand the course of the disease and the impact of the interventions in patient outcomes. And with those areas, patients do not have any, any problem. This was quite well proved in the Harmony Alliance project. Uh, the problems were with the registries, were not with the patients. And the problems were with the registry because the ownership of the data gives power. At the end of the day, this information uh, is translated into power. And the lack of funding opportunities for registries, the lack of support to build registries, the lack of national registries really capturing all clinical domains, but also all quality of life domains are making uh, are building a scenario where the current registries are managed like businesses, I'm afraid. Well, <clears throat> what will certainly not help to speed up research is if uh, the parliament uh, tends uh, in the uh, European yeah, health data space discussions uh, too much um, to an opt-in uh, instead of opt-out um, uh, focus. Um, because I, I think this is definitely something where all healthcare professionals um, and, and patients uh, agree that you know, opt-out in itself uh, is already uh, or carries the risk of, of delaying um, uh, research, uh, puts up an extra obstacle, but perhaps a necessary one. But opt-in uh, would really do huge damage. Okay. Uh, Matthias, perhaps final word for you on this um, data aspect? Um, well, I, I think on the, well, the commission is currently in discussion with the co-legislators, so I'm afraid I cannot really go into detail on that. Um, on the GDPR, um, indeed, uh, there are issues in terms of the interpretation of the regulation at national level um, and uh, the commission is working on that trying to flesh out uh, for instance sample agreements uh, that can be used then by uh, entities who want to share data across borders um, and indeed uh, i think natasha mentioned also uh, the right to be forgotten where um, we have i think since the adoption of the plan seen quite a lot of progress in the area in the sense that um, several other member states have uh, initiated legislative measures um, but of course this also needs to then uh, take account of let's say the national 
um, legal frameworks and also indeed national competences because here uh, many competences are with the member states. Okay. Um, okay, so we've spoken quite a bit um, about data and it seems that obviously it is a massively complex um, issue. So Sophie, can innovation perhaps, um, and you could say research and development, really learn from, I don't know, cancer networks and from other ways if data can't really inform it? Cancer networks, I mean, and you mean the registries? Mm, the registries, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it, it depends on the quality of data. Of course. So, but if you, if you can ideally link, if you have such a set of patient characteristics and their outcomes, their response to treatment, and enough of those data that at one point you can link, you can make a prognosis of which patient uh, characteristics, genetic, genetic or um, age or weight or um, where they live. Uh, anything related to, to their, their circumstances, and you can make a prognosis on how they are going to respond to treatment, you can make that treatment more personalized. So in my ideal world, that is what registers, registries are going to give us. Um, also in terms of, and that's a topic that is in Europe, we call it inequalities, and the FDA is very strict. You need to have a diversity and inclusion plan for your clinical trials, so diversity and inclusion um, it translates to the inequalities that you have among with pa pa patients from different socioeconomic backgrounds or different races. And ideally with a registry, you can also, for instance, learn that uh, a specific race is more prone to respond in a specific way to treatment or not, or will, will, get, um, will have a faster progression of disease. And those data, I think we are not allowed to capture in Europe, I believe that at national levels, there is a difference in different uh, countries. What you can what you can ask the patients to fill in what the race uh, that they have. So that's already a limitation that I see. But ideally, yes, it can it can mean a lot for um, R and D. Yeah, I mean, in the states, for example, you would see much better data collection on that, and and very interesting studies on incidence differences uh, and other aspects that do relate to ethnicity. And we are quite behind. In Europe on that and I think it would be something when we think about registry cooperation can we not get some of these fields of information that are missing at the European level picked up. Okay so we've got about 50 minutes left so I want to go around the panel and ask them their sort of top ask when it comes to member states um, when it comes to obviously trying to help um, blood cancer patients so start with that MEP first what would be your top ask to member states? That read carefully the Becca report from the Parliament and also the study from the Commission and follow the lines and give answers to the things that we are claiming. I think that we have a very important document. We have a very important strategy for all Europe. So I want to see... You mentioned year. all of Europe, but sometimes when it comes to health, it does become a kind of two-state Europe. So how does yeah, your report perhaps help those countries I, I think, that aren't doing so well? I think that some countries, the, the countries had different challenges. It was mentioned previously that it's not the same in the Western countries than the Eastern ones. But in all countries, we are facing common challenges. Maybe in the access to treatments, it's not the same Germany than Romania. It's very clear. But 
even into those countries. We have inequalities. And regarding blood cancer, we can see these inequalities, even into the uh, regional level, but also into the society. It's not the same, the wealthy people and the less income people. So the challenges are common. Some countries have touched some points regarding, for example, the accessibility to the treatments, how is the reimbursement, and also other things, for example, when it comes to the uh, how the cancer, the, the vision of cancer from the population. That is one thing that we didn't touch, but we, we have to make more steps on that. Better information, provide better information for the people what a cancer is. That sometimes it's like a stigma that you say cancer or death, and it's not. And, and but who would you target in information campaigns? Because when we're talking about the different types of cancer, I mean, for example, um, Sophie was talking about leukemia in young children. It's very prevalent. So who are you trying to target? And then if you're trying to target, I mean, do you make a general campaign? Do you target specific groups that are more? First, you need general campaigns for cancer. Regarding blood cancer, is sometimes very difficult because you, you, you want to manage lifestyle or prevention in some cancers that are very clear, tobacco, lung cancer, other diseases, other cancers. But regarding blood cancer, it's more complicated because you don't have a clear lifestyle that ends in a, in a blood cancer. So we need dedicated programs for that. And that's why we need also the specialty in whole Europe. It's, 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 for me, as I said before, it's not acceptable that we don't have these specialists of hematology in, in all the member states. But of course, we need uh, campaigns for whole cancer and to reduce the stigma and give, and we have measures to improve this, this situation in member states, the right to be forgotten, for example, that it was approved in my country recently because this Becker report if this Becker report didn't exist, we, we won't have the, the right to be forgotten in Spain. You know, the right to be forgotten is you have a cancer and you have the right to say uh, nothing about your cancer when you, have a, you take an insurance or you take a mortgage. Yes, that was because the Becker report. So we need general campaigns, but also dedicated campaigns for blood cancer because, yes, when we talk to the population, we are saying your lifestyle can help you to reduce the risk of cancer. But you cannot say that in the blood cancer, for example. Okay, so what, what would you say you, would be your key asks of a member state or just perhaps in general when it comes to blood cancers? Um, the key words here are, are really willingness uh, and acknowledgement on the part of member states that um, in blood cancers, perhaps more than in, in any other cancer area, uh, it is really absolutely crucial um, to, to harmonize and, and, and collaborate. The challenges uh, can simply not be dealt with uh, at the national level. Um, uh, this goes for uh, the access and affordability challenges. Um, it goes for uh, specialty recognition. Um, when, every, when every country uh, does these things uh, in its own way, um, it is very difficult uh, to come to an effective uh, approach across Europe. Um, I, what we see is that um, uh, the, 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 the hematology professionals and other medical specialties, uh, the patient organizations, industry, 
um, there is all uh, this awareness is there and the willingness uh, to, to collaborate and, and work together to come to these harmonized uh, approaches um, for research, for diagnostics, for, for therapeutics. Um, the member states, uh, that's where, where the obstacles uh, are. Uh, they cling to their own national competencies, of course, uh, specifically for everything that touches on national healthcare budgets. And whereas to some extent that is understandable, uh, we will not manage to get all this innovation that is, is taking place in, in hematology to the patients that need them without the member states' uh, willingness to, to collaborate on this. Okay, so harmonization is key for you then. Um, for you, Richard? Well, I would say to the member states, the beating cancer plan is your plan. It's not a top-down set of instructions. It's a, it's a group of shared goals, shared tools to help every country do better. So if you want to introduce new screening programs, the plan's there to help. If you want to introduce new training programs, the plan's there to help. And I think all member states should be thinking of it in that manner, taking it as an inspiration and a stimulus to go further and faster in their own country. With the risk of sounding like a broken record, uh, quality of life again, more emphasis, but at the industry level, uh, academia, all types of sponsors of clinical trials, but also the regulators and the payers, please, when we, when we have those data, look at them. Um, and, and if we don't bring them to you in a way that, that you find acceptable, let's talk about it and let's make a device, a, a framework or set of guidances on how we can collect those patient experience data in such a way that they do uh, count in the assessment. Is there anything specifically that you're working on right now that you'd like to tell us about? A lot of the things that I've shared today is actually my daily life. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Okay, Natasha. Uh, well, I want to highlight first the need for patient involvement in key areas of the cancer pathway from designing and planning cancer policy, framing cancer research questions important to cancer patients and ensuring that patient representatives have a seat at the table of any discussion related to the adoption of the different uh, plans. Um, I also want to tell that clinical practice cannot be divergent. So we need to ensure that there is, uh, that we have harmonized procedures across countries. And I want to introduce something just because you were talking about the prevention uh, area, lifestyles and those things. And I fully recognize the role in developing cancers because of the lifestyle and many other things, you know, smoking and many areas that are linked. But all those at the end of the day have a role in other diseases as well in diabetes, in obesity, in cardiovascular diseases, in respiratory diseases. So I really would like the European Cancer Plan to get focusing what only, uh, it's only applicable in the cancer landscape. And here is where early detection and screening whenever possible, that is not the case for blood cancers. That must be the areas of focus. The other, type of prevention that it will bring benefit not only to cancer but to health public health in general in my view and allow me to to think different that should be a whole different piece that 
shouldn't be jeopardizing the attention or the funding opportunities for what is only uh, what only belongs to the cancer space. Okay. So, Matthias, last question to you then. Um, this beating cancer plan, I mean, I'm sure lots more is going to come from the Commission. Um, how much of the policy that the Commission is going to work on do you feel is really going to benefit the blood cancer patients specifically? And I'm also thinking specifically about the youngest um, amongst us, the children who obviously get leukaemia. How does the policy that you create, do you think, really filter down um, and help people who will be very, very scared about the kind of cancer that they've got? Well, I think uh, the areas that we touched uh, in today's discussion already showed that uh, quite in many areas, um, the, the actions supported by the cancer plan, even if they are not specific uh, addressing blood cancer, um, have indeed and will have a significant impact also on the treatment um, of uh, blood cancer patients. Um, perhaps uh, one word uh, on the uh, previous question that you asked, we should uh, indeed not only focus here only on the member states, but as Natasha uh, mentioned also, so I think it's a joint effort. So um, the EU level member states and also the stakeholder community jointly have to work together um, to really uh, make this plan happen and improve cancer care throughout Europe. Um, perhaps one point where, where I would not agree with Natasha is the issue of primary prevention, um, because it's clear um, that 40% of cancers can be prevented by uh, lifestyle changes. So we should not discount that potential that we have here in this area um, while focusing then um, only on, let's say, uh, cancer once it has developed and, and needs to be treated. Of course, that's also a strong pillar of the plan, but we should not include um, primary prevention. Um, perhaps coming back to, to blood cancer, and here also the invitation to the stakeholder community uh, to continue engaging um, at the EU level and also closely monitor uh, what's forthcoming. Um, just to give you an example, um, when we launched the cancer plan in 2021, one of the first calls for projects um, included uh, also can, uh, the Cancer Diagnostic and Treatment for All initiative. Uh, and as part of this initiative, we actually have now a project up and running, uh, which is called CHIP AML22, which focuses on acute myeloid leukemia. So there is also something specifically um, in the cancer plan to address blood cancer. And uh, the cancer plan will continue to be implemented. Of course, with the new mandate, we are currently now um, assessing the implementation of the plan. Um, and uh, the results of this assessment will then feed into potential considerations uh, for review of the plan uh, in late 2024. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, well, panelists, we're going to leave it there. Thank you to all of you um, for your participate, uh, participation. Thank you also to our um, guests who are um, our audience members who are um, in studio with us and obviously to everyone who is joining us online. I hope that today's discussion has informed you a little bit better about the kind of blood cancers out there um, and what sort of help is available for you should you um, unfortunately need it. Um, 
You've been watching your active hybrid conference forwarded by Sanofi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.